Well, good morning to you again. I'm Taylor. I'm a pastor here at Sojourn Gallery, and you are most, most welcome. Can I just say he is risen one more time? God, never gets old. So good. We might start saying that every Sunday. Amen. Well, look, I want to preach on Easter ecstasy this morning. It sounds a bit like a, like a drug-induced uh, uh, sermon title, but we're going to get there. Easter ecstasy is what we see from the passage that, that Austin just read. It's what the women it's how they react, just ecstatic in ecstasy from what they see or don't see. So I wanna dive into that together. You know, I, to be honest, I, for a long time, didn't quite get Easter, and I, I'm still getting it. I think I won't get it fully until I see him face-to-face. I think that's probably true for all the truths of, of Christianity, but especially for the cross and for the resurrection. But I want you to know this one thing, that the resurrection, it's so much more than one man rising from the dead. And we're gonna talk about that. We're gonna start with the evidence, okay? We're gonna get there. But it's so much more. It's not less. God forbid. It's not less than one man rising from the dead. But a lot of us, as we're singing these songs and thinking about Easter and why does it matter, why does everything change because a guy rose from the dead? It's so much more than one man rising from the dead. What Easter signifies, and this is what his first followers eventually got and started proclaiming and what they went to their deaths, 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 many of them proclaiming is, that when Jesus rose from the dead, it wasn't just one man rising. It was humanity, a new humanity rising from the dead. It was a new day that was dawning. So um, I was looking at my kids in the car just, I think two days ago, I was driving. I pulled one of those, you know, I'm sure you do this, parents. Don't, you don't have to admit it, but one of those dumb and dumbers where he's driving and he's looking back, you know, and we all do it when our, our kids are being geese, but they were, they were just uh, being silly and smiling and, and just being children, and uh, all the clamor and all the happiness and joy, um, just that kidness, and the thought occurred to me, and it has many times, actually, that one day this is going to end, and a great sadness in the midst of their joy, a great sadness uh, swept over me. Um, they will die, and so will everything, in fact. We, we know the second law of thermodynamics, um, this universe is running down. It's a fact. No one disputes the fact that this universe, this cosmos, is going to die a heat death. And if that's the end, if that's the end, not only will my children die, not only will I die, not only will all these precious moments end, this spark that is in them, this life, gone, but everything will. Everything's running down. And if that's, no one disputes that. And if this is the end, then logic demands that we say that actually nothing matters, no matter how seemingly meaningful now, if that is the end and there's nothing after that, then nothing matters. Uh, Shakespeare in Macbeth said this. He said, this life is but a walking shadow, a poor player who struts and frets his hour upon the stage. Think of your life as just an hour upon a stage and then is heard from no more. It's a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying, finish it for me, nothing. That is pure logic if the second law and the red shift and the expansion and eventual coldness and death of everything is the end. Everything is running down, friends, but it's not meant to. And Easter morning, get this, is God's promise to us that this is not the end and that this will not last forever, that Christ has a new word, that Christ has the final word, that he's broken, he's broken through the, the wall, the pitiless wall of the world that's closing in on us in death. He's broken through that into a new age and we get to follow our captain through, all we who look to him, okay? 
um, life has broken in, a reverse of the curse that causes death has broken in. So I wanna dig into that this morning together with the few minutes we have. Um, And I wanna propose to you this, that the resurrection, among other things, but I'm trying to stick to this text and look at these women's reaction, right? This ecstasy. The resurrection means that true joy is possible. Not one day, now. In the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your darkness, in the midst of your questioning, because of the resurrection, true joy, true joy, regardless of your circumstances. I'm not talking happiness, painted smile. I'm talking deep abiding peace and grounded joy. It's possible now. So let's look at the evidence briefly. Let's rattle through just some of the things that we see in this text. Um, Evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. This is not exhaustive. If you want exhaustive, this ain't the place, this 30-minute sermon, but let me give you a few books before I forget. I was gonna do this at the end of this point, but let me just do it now because I might forget. So Josh McDowell, More Than a Carpenter. It's sold like over 10 million copies. That's a classic, really easy read, but really good. Josh McDowell, More Than a Carpenter. Um, The, uh, I'm trying to think if there was one more I had in my head, but The Resurrection of the Son of God by N.T. Wright. It's a thick one, it's kind of the opposite. Josh McDowell's is like 80 pages, this one's like 800. The Resurrection of the Son of God by Tom Wright, um, W-R-I-G-H-T is a tome and it's a really good, I haven't read the whole thing, but it's a meaty meal. Um, Those are just a couple, oh, uh, um, Strobel, Lee Strobel, The Cross of Christ, I believe he's written on the resurrection. Um, He went to Yale, he was an atheist and he was convinced just by looking at the, the biblical evidence that this thing, there's so much evidence There's so much evidence for the resurrection. Um, So let's look at just a few of these things that Mark lets us into. He starts off surprisingly, and I'll show you why surprisingly in a second, with women coming to the tomb. In this, his account of the resurrection of the Lord of all things, he starts off with a gaggle of women in verse one. He also, if you look back um, to the verse before in in chapter 15, 47, he mentions some of the same women. Um, on the, uh, the day of rest after Christ was crucified, and also in 15 verse 40, same women. Um, he's mentioning these women as sort of source citations. Richard Baucom, he's a New Testament scholar at Cambridge, and he, he specializes in the historicity of the Gospels in particular, and he calls these ancient source citations, these, the mention of these women, who exactly they were. It's w- one, of the things, one of the things Mark is doing here is he's saying, you want, you want to go, you want, to, you want evidence for the resurrection? It's these women, go talk to them. They're still alive. This is what they saw or didn't see at the tomb. They're sort of like footnotes, okay? Um, secondly, again, let's just stay with the women as evidence for the resurrection. The fact that Mark starts with them, okay? If you were making up a story to validate something that you wanted to have happened, to validate, hey, our Messiah's risen when he really wasn't and you knew it, you wouldn't start in this culture with women as the first eyewitnesses. Um, there was, a, there was a, uh, an opponent of Christianity in the second century <clears throat> AD called Celsus. And he obviously wrote against Christianity, argued against it. And one of his chief arguments was the documents that they have as evidence for the resurrection say that women were the first eyewitnesses. Women were not, not in this culture allowed to testify in a court of law. Their testimony was not accepted. Um, and he, Celsus goes on to say things like they're, uh, they're unreliable and they're talkative and garrulous and their testimony can't be believed. Now, we know that that's not true. We know that the ancients had it wrong, but the, that's not the point. The point is, in this culture, if you were trying to build a case, to fabricate and to build a case for the resurrection of, the Lord, of your Lord and it didn't happen, you would never start with, and women were the first ones at the tomb. 
But that's exactly what we see. Even worse, let's stay with women. Even worse, these are unbelieving women. What do I mean by that? Okay, Jesus had said over and over and over again, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, just as the scriptures have foretold. The Old Testament says this about Messiah, I'm going to die. And on the third day, he said over and over, Mark has it three times in his book. And Mark is a spare writer. And three is sort of a special significant number, standing for fullness and other things. So what Mark, when Mark recording that Jesus said this three times to his disciples, after I die, third day, I'll rise, uh, it, pr- it probably means that he said it a lot to them. Just It was a constant refrain. That being the case, nobody believes that on the third day after Jesus' death, Friday, day one, Saturday, day two, day three, let's go, remember what he said, let's go check it out. How do we know this? Because what are they carrying? What are the women carrying when they come to the tomb? They're carrying spices. Why are they carrying spices? To give to the risen Jesus? No. They're carrying spices because that body in this heat, it's April, it's Jerusalem, was gonna start stanking. And they didn't want that out of respect for their dead savior. They wanted to come. They, they rested on the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath on Saturday. He was crucified Friday evening. They rested on the Sabbath, didn't do any work. On the next day, Sunday, as early as they could when the sun is rising at about 627 a.m. right now in Jerusalem, the sun rises, okay, in April. Um, on, on this day. And so at about 6.30, they're at the tomb with these spices to just anoint the dead body to make sure that he doesn't stink out of respect for him. So they are going, not expecting a risen Christ at all. Um, we have other details. And also it says that they looked up, okay, when they got to the tomb. It could have been elevated, but also their heads are almost certainly down in dismay. They're looking at their feet. Why? Because they're so sad. Because their whole world just came to an end on Friday. Their whole world got crucified and they watched it. They are not expecting this. Other details, there's an angelic figure sitting there. He's a young man. He's seated on the right side, Mark says. Why? Because the women told. That's exactly how we saw it. That's an irrelevant detail, friends. That has nothing to do with the plot. Why would they have said it this way? There's really only one explanation. There was no such thing as sort of the realistic novel. There was no such sort of literature like that. So this detail is totally extraneous unless what? Unless it just happened that way and they're recording it. We were on spring break. A couple of weeks ago with our kids, man, that was a trip. And uh, we went up to North Carolina. We have three small kids, so you can use your imagination. But it was great. They're road warriors. In North Carolina, I went to school up there, um, saw two friends. And one of them, actually, he was in South Carolina. I said to my wife when we were driving up, I'm like, I wonder if I haven't seen this guy. He's got three kids. He's married. He's been married for 10 years. I haven't seen him. I haven't met his wife or his kids. The first time. First time for my kids to meet them all. It was great. 15-minute pit stop. Coffee hugs, bathroom, kids are playing in the other room, let's get back in the car and keep cruising. But I said to my wife, I'm like, I wonder if Matt still hugs like this. This is what he does when he, when he, he puts his arm out, for, I don't know how, where he got this, but he, he does this when he wants to hug you and you like come into the fold, you know? But it totally did, I stepped out of the car and he goes, brother! And I was like, that is so weird, I love you. Point is, why, and so my next friend in Lexington, North Carolina, he's a doctor and he got off, you know, got, it was like, man, God opened up a hole in my schedule. He got off amazingly from 11 to 1 right before we pulled in. He pops out of the back door of his clinic like a monkey. He's just doing this, and he jumps on a picnic table, and he's like, Woo! and he's so excited, and he comes and grabs me. And why, why would I mention that Matt pulls his hand out like that? Why would I mention that my friend bounded out of his medical clinic like a monkey? Because it happened. This is, what, this is the sort of, this, this isn't just in Mark. This is the sort of details that we get throughout these narratives. There was a young man sitting on the right side because it happened that way. Um, and so the women, 
were unbelieving, but the men even worse. Like I said, Jesus had told them more than anyone, I am going to die. It has to be that way. It's why I came, to die as a atoning sacrifice in your place. I'm not dying for me. I'm dying for you, to be a shield for you, okay, to, to be your way to God, to bury your sins, to nail them to the cross. And then I'm gonna, on the third day though, and they just hated hearing that, but hey, hey on the third day, postscript, I'm gonna rise. But none of his disciples even show up, which is why the women are the only ones there, okay? Um, no one showed up to check. Now, again, what am I saying? I'm just sort of piling on evidence. This is one hundredth of the evidence that we have for the resurrection. This is a tiny bit, okay? I'm just starting point one. But check, check out those books. Talk to me for other sources. Talk to others here. Just consider it. Consider it. There's a lot of evidence. Um, but the, uh, the disciples, many of them and others, went on to write these histories, these accounts, and some people say these are just fabrications to sort of uh, build up the early church. Friends, they were pillars in the early church. They were the ones proclaiming the gospel. This made them look horrible. Their master told them over and over again, I will rise, and none of them even showed up. Why would they put that in there unless it happened? Okay, so that's just, that's just a bit. Um, now, there's a, sweet, there's a sweet word in verse seven. When Austin read it, my heart rose. It never, it never ceases to impress itself upon me. In verse, seven, in verse seven, the angel says, but go tell his disciples, speaking to the women, and Peter, that he is going before you to Galilee. Okay, Galilee was where they did their ministry. Galilee is where he commissioned them, Matthew 28. Galilee was their home base, and from there he's saying, go out to all the world, okay? Uh, a few of us in this room have stood on the place where he likely did that, and you can see in all four cardinal directions. Okay, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing to imagine that. Um, but he says, go tell the disciples and Peter, okay? Now, why would he have done that? Why would he have put Peter outside of the disciples? Well, one of two reasons. Peter could have, so the women went back and told Peter this. Peter could have received this in one of two ways, with trepidation, like, go tell the disciples and also Peter, who's not a disciple, because he denied me three times. See, Peter's the one who, Jesus said, you're a rock, and your confession of me is a rock, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But Peter said, I will never deny you, and ended up denying Jesus, three, his Lord, that he said he would never deny three times right before his cross and left him to die on a cross. And, you know, he could have, I mean, that was the last time he saw Jesus. That was the last thing he did for Jesus. And when he hears from these women that Jesus is not there, that he's risen, all of a sudden he's gonna remember what Jesus has said, and then if he just hears, uh, tell the disciples, he's probably gonna think I'm not included, but also tell the disciples and Peter, that could mean, and Peter who's not a disciple. But we know that that doesn't, it doesn't mean that, right? It can't because of what Peter goes on to do. He goes on to be one of the pillars of the early church and because of the promises that Christ made. When you deny me, I am praying for you that your faith would not fail, that you might encourage your brothers when you recover. And so it's that sweet word to this sinner who knows his sin and rebellion. He knows that he's let his savior down and who knows all the more that he needs what Christ took for him on that cross. That sweet word, Peter, you too, brother, and I'm calling you out by name, get thee to Galilee. What a hopeful, how that must have made Peter's heart just sing, just sing with joy and a sense of absolute repentance. And can I say, just as an aside, to push this into your heart and your mind, there is nothing, this boy was with Christ, one of Christ's hand-picked men, and he denied his savior three times in the heat of battle. And yet, Christ rises and calls him by name rather than crushing him. There is nothing 
that you can do. Nothing you can do that Christ has not died for, that Christ has not come for. There is nothing you can do that can stand between you and the crucified and risen Savior. He has come for you. He is saying your name. Judas, who betrayed Christ, put himself out of Christ's mercy only by ending his life himself. I think he too could have been forgiven because there's no sin that we can put ourselves outside of the mercy of Christ if we will simply respond to his call and come to him. I, can I also say before we go to ecstasy point two that um, this is one of the things I truly believe. Peter thought he was strong before but was actually weak. He was relying on his own strength and now from this point forward he knows he is weak and his strength comes through a crucified and risen Messiah. There's nothing he can do to polish up and make himself good enough. It's all through the work of Jesus Christ, done for him, crucified and risen, not for Christ, but for Peter. This helps to make Peter a general in Christ's army. To know, to truly know your sin, and to know that the only ground that you have to stand on is Jesus and his work and his person. Man, this, this is a solid foundation for Peter. And, uh, Coming to grips with the depths of our own sin and depravity such that we flee to Christ is really the one thing that qualifies us in Christ's family. That's it. To know that we're sinners and that he is a greater savior, greater even than our sin. This is one of the things that qualified Peter, to know that we're unqualified, and that's okay because he came for unqualified people, okay? So um, the last thing, verse six, see the place where they laid him under this evidence here? See the place where they laid him, the angel says. He doesn't say to the women, you unbelieving fools! Okay, he does say, he does say uh, just as he told you, which is like the ultimate told you so. Just as he told you, bam, you know, but, uh, <laughs> but it's also this wonderful thing because the news is so good, they don't even care. But he doesn't say, now get, get out of here, don't search around. He says, no, go check it out if you want. And what is, what is uh, in another gospel, John, what, is John, what does Jesus say when he presents himself to some of the disciples in a room, a closed room? Thomas says, Thomas had said earlier, I won't even believe, I'm not gonna believe unless I see him. And he, he calls to Thomas. He doesn't say, you didn't believe. I told you you didn't believe anyway, man. You're, you're toast. Boom, jelly. He doesn't say that. He says, what does he do? He invites him in. Test, put your fingers here in the holes that will forever be in my hands to remind you of the, how much I love you, the price that I paid for you. Put them in. Put them in my side. There's still a hole there. There will always be a hole there because we will never forget. A million years hence, in the new heavens and new earth, friends, we will never forget why we're there and what holds the universe together, and what has made all things new, that he buried sin and death in the curse. We will never forget. But he says, come. And that's what the angels say, here, come check it out. Y'all, Christianity is a, is, is a friend of evidence. Come check it out. We are, a, we are friend, Jesus is a friend of skeptics. He is a friend of skeptics. It is a, Christianity is a friend of the evidence because it's the truth. Now, as you, just like with science, when you, the more you learn about science and astrophysics and nanotechnology, the more questions and problems you will have. Okay, and that's the case with Christianity. The more you press into it, the more questions and problems you're gonna have. But it is true, and it will bear the weight of your scrutiny. But like uh, St. Anselm a thousand years ago said, okay, um, was it fidens quarens intellectum, faith seeking understanding. We use our rationale, but we are not rationalists, okay? We are rational, but we don't, we don't say that our minds are the end of all things. God is in his word, and we submit our rationale searching, wanting to know by faith to his word. Lord, lead me. Lord, guide me. Let your word, my, my intellect and my rationale are not the end of all things. Okay, it is broken. Align it according to your word. Okay, Christianity said it invites the skeptic. It invites, come and check out the evidence. Come see where they laid him. 
And that's the thing, last thing before ecstasy is that um, if we look at John 20 also, okay, this is Mark. If you go to John 20, don't go now. Another piece of evidence, again, there's tons, but another piece of evidence for the resurrection is that just this extraneous detail, uh, Peter and John are told by the women, uh, he's risen, he's one, we saw an angel, he's on the right side, and they just, boom, they just bolt out of the door, and they, they start sprinting, and John's younger, he's the youngest disciple, Peter's probably quite a bit older, and so John says, he's recording this in John, John 20, he gets there first to the tomb, because he's, he's just, boom, he's a young life, you know, and he gets there first, and he's more respectful, and kind of more, kind of, more of a thinker, and Peter's the impulsive one, and Peter blows, he stops, at, John stops at the outside of the tomb out of respect, like, whoa, stone's not there, holiness. And Peter just, just bursts on through like a comet with a trail behind him, pops in, and, what, and then John goes in behind him, and what do they see? This extraneous detail, the linen clothes, the grave clothes are, are there still, and the headpiece is folded separately. Now, people have, have spilled ink on this. In short, one of the things we can that's, again, another piece of evidence, if you're a grave robber, you're not gonna take the time. Why would you ever take the cloth off of a body and then take the body gory and everything? You would not do that. Plus the foldedness. It's like Jesus said to death. I'm gonna put it here. I'm done with you. You stay there. I'm going into a new age and I'm bringing anyone who wants to come with me, Okay. So that's the evidence briefly. Let's look even more brief, briefly, much more briefly at the ecstasy. Verse eight, the women, what are the, this is just their response really, the ecstasy. The women in verse eight, they fled for trembling and astonishment had seized them. The word astonishment there is the, word, the Greek word ecstasis. You see now why I titled the sermon Easter ecstasy. They, they are filled with this ecstasis from which we get our word ecstasy. They, they react with an admixture to this news of ecstatic joy, but also profound fear. It grips them. It seizes them. I think the best way to describe this in English is like when we go, it can't be. It's too good to be true. I'm scared to believe this. You know, that's, that's exactly what they're doing with a sense of holy fear on them because they just saw their leader crucified two days earlier, okay? Um, let me take a sip and then talk to you about, you know what's coming, J.R. Tolkien. And then, we'll, and then we'll get to the third point, a new world order, okay? Um, just in thinking about this ecstasy, this, this, this reaction of this women, I love how it's so abrupt. This is probably the, the original ending to Mark. The rest of the verses are probably, maybe, quite possibly not part of the original manuscript, which we have such great manuscript evidence, we know this, okay, about, about this, this ending. Um, it's an abrupt ending. It's just like Mark. I love, I love, it's all we need. He's risen, boom, they're out of here. You know, we don't need anything else. He's risen, who cares, you know? Um, but Tolkien, J.R. Tolkien, a friend of C.S. Lewis, wrote Lord of the Rings and other things. Uh, we've seen the movies, perhaps. If you have, please read the book. Um, yeah, join our book club next time we read it in two or three years. We have our last meeting in about a month. Uh, I can't wait. But um, Tolkien, he, he was a wonderful writer and thinker and a devoted believer, Roman Catholic. And he talks about, in an in a, in a, in a essay called On Fairy Stories, he talks about the nature of a good story. And he was an amazing storyteller. And he, this is one of the things he actually helped argue to get C.S. Lewis to come to Christ from, an, from atheism years before. He said, look, we have all these myths about death and rebirth, the bad news and then the good news. 
And Christianity is the myth that's actually real, around from which we get all the other myths. There are whispers, because we're all made by God, all the peoples of the earth have whispers of what's true, of the, of the way that things ought to be, the way that things should be. And so they've, they've written these myths. And they're all lies breathed through silver. But Christianity is the myth that was made real, the true myth. And, and in this story, in this essay on fairy stories, Tolkien says, the greatest stories, they have what's called a you catastrophe. Now, we all know the word catastrophe. It's horrible. It's a cataclysm. That you, it's terrible stuff. But you is the Greek, the prefix that means good. So like a eulogy is to speak a good word at someone's funeral. A you catastrophe is a cataclysm of absolute disaster and darkness. Think about a good story followed by light, by goodness, by salvation, by redemption, by the hero winning. Now, we all love these kind of stories. That's what every fairy tale is. They resonate with us. But in our culture, we live in a cynical culture. And all the awards for all the movies that are given are given for movies that sort of, especially in our postmodern, post-postmodern age, they end, they have a like cliffhanger ending, nothing makes sense. It's like you go into the Apple store and everything's just all over the place. That's a postmodern statement. There's no order. You know, just kind of wander around until you find someone, you know? Like, where's the front desk? There is no front. Isn't that savvy? Um, <laughs> You know, and so um, that's an absolutely a philosophical statement. Don't miss that. And so, um, but uh, Tolkien, he says, the reason those stories resonate, okay, like even Spielberg, there's a reason that we resonate. He's the best director ever, right? There's a reason that, because all of his stories have these, this horrible thing and then a fairy tale, romantic, beautiful, you catastrophe ending. But he didn't get an award for his best, for best picture until he made a sad you know, sort of, where are we kind of movie, right? But there's a reason we love those movies because it's in us and it's in us deeply, not just because we want it to be true, but because it is true. Because the God of the universe knew before he made anything the story he would weave with all of history. And he knew that this would be the point on which all history hangs. The son of God crucified for us. Can you get any darker? What a train wreck. And that's where the disciples are and the women, just heads down. And then, just as he said, but we've all forgotten, three days later, they go to the tomb. You catastrophe. Oh my God, it's true. It resonates with us because God has woven it into the way that history is playing out. And all the stories that tie into that resonance grab us. But this is the myth that's been made true. And so we have a great hope. And Tolkien has this great line, joy beyond the walls of the world has entered our world through the person of Christ and he has buried every opponent to joy, our sin and darkness and he has left it in the grave along with the grave clothes and he has broken through the pitiless walls of the world into a new world. And this is what the resurrection means. It's not just a guy rising, it means we get to follow. Let's, let's talk for a few minutes about the new world order, point three. Does it make any difference? I've already told you a little bit about how it does, but let's flesh that out. Keller in one of his books says, does it make any difference? I love, I love his three-word response. Oh, my yes. <laughs> oh, my yes. That's kind of like, where do I start? Let me give you two reasons, okay, and then we'll pray. The resurrection means, reason one, why does it make a difference in your life tomorrow morning? Oh, forget tomorrow morning, when you leave here. But hey, when you start at 8 a.m. or 9 a.m. at your desk, or for some crazies of you, 3 a.m., one of my friends told me recently, he gets in the office around 3 now because he calls it the undiscovered country. 
you know? And it's going to stay undiscovered for everyone but you, and that's why he's going to get ahead, okay? Um, awesome. But for most of us mortals, 8 or 9 a.m., um, what does this matter for me then? I know what it matters for me when I'm sleeping at 3 a.m. It means that I'm still sleeping, okay? In peace, when I get up and start working, the resurrection means that I'm free. The resurrection means that you can be truly, I'm not speaking puffing platitudes. I don't care about platitudes. Life's too short and eternity's too long for platitudes. Yay, hoorah, if a guy rose from the dead and that's it. Yay, hoorah, I don't care. But this is not what the resurrection means. The resurrection means you are free. Romans 4.25, which Paul, not talking to me, put up on the screen. Jesus, our Lord, Paul says, who was delivered up for our trespasses. Why did Jesus die? Not for him. Because of your sins, he bore them on the cross and he buried them. And he said, what? It's finished. Don't you keep trying to pay for your sins. They've been paid for. There's no double jeopardy. God is just. You're free. Okay? But listen to this. He was delivered up. Why? For our trespasses. But why was he raised? He was raised for our justification. Okay? He was raised. The fact that he rose from the dead, this is what Paul's saying, means this one thing and much more. It means that you are now just or right with God. It means that he looked at the death of Christ for your sins, for all of your sins, past, present, future, if you look to Christ as your savior. He looked to Christ and he said, boom, stamp, paid for in full, rise. If Christ is still in the grave, you are still in your sins. Good news, he's not paid for. You're free. Amen. All right, Luther said the same thing in his 1529. Martin Luther, the, Re- the German reformer, pastor, former monk, in his Easter sermon in 1529, he said this, but Christ is raised not for himself, but for me. Amen. So that's what the resurrection means. It means that you have been raised to a new life. And it starts not when you die and then have the bodily resurrection like him, which you will, but it starts the minute you trust in Christ and the spirit of the living God comes inside of you. That's when his resurrection begins in you. It breaks into this world, okay? That's the other thing it means. It means that the resurrection means that the curse has been reversed. A new world order has begun. It's been injected into this world order, sort of like ink dropped in water. Eventually, it spreads everywhere. And it is spreading. And it will color and it will take over everything. So the resurrection, under this resurrection means the curse is reversed. A couple points. The resurrection is a restart. It's a restart. Stay with me just for a second while we look at verse one again. When the Sabbath was passed, verse one, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Okay, and then in the next verse, um, Mark says, and very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Okay, so the Sabbath is passed, Saturday, and Sunday, the beginning of the first day of the week, okay, it, it, um, they come to the tomb. When the Sabbath was passed. Okay, so check this out. Mark's, what, he's, what is he doing? Well, he's telling us when Christ rose, obviously. Okay, he's telling us when the women went to the tomb. He's telling us that they rested on the last day of the week, and on the first day of the Jewish week they came. Okay, but he's... Pushing back, just pause for a second. Give me a couple minutes of your focus, okay? He's pushing back, and he's saying, so this is a, Jew, a largely Jewish audience, okay? These are Jews going to the tomb. This is a Jew who died for the world, for anyone who would come. But they have a Jewish worldview. And the Sabbath was the last day of creation. 
on the, in Genesis 1, you go back to Genesis 1, the creation account, God made all things in the space of six days. Whether or not, we're not talking, do you believe in this little sixth day or not? Who cares? Okay, no, that's not true. Don't, okay, this is recorded. I do care. It matters. My point here is that Mark is, is going back to the way that things are recorded in Scripture, okay? And he's saying, God made everything in the space of six days. And on the seventh day, as a pattern for us, and on the seventh day, Saturday, that's the Jewish week, Saturday, so Sunday through Friday, he worked and made all things. Saturday, he rested, okay? So the Jews rested. They worked Sunday through Monday through Friday, and then they rested on Saturday, okay? And Jesus, when he comes, when Jesus comes as the God-man, as the Messiah, as the creator of the world to become a baby and growing up and then starting his ministry, what is he doing? He's absorbing the curse. He didn't just absorb the curse and do the work necessary for us on the cross, but his whole life he was suffering. His whole life he was blessing and doing good and reversing that curse. He was being rejected, okay? He was being rejected by the ones he had made and starting to feel the effects of the curse in so many ways, okay? But he was also reversing the curse, healing people, providing food for folks, touching them, loving them, speaking words of hope and life and truth and the kingdom of God to them. He was working. He was doing the work of God. He was God working those six days, the week of his life, as it were, okay? The final, the final day in creation, Genesis 1, what happens? What does God make? He makes the cherry on top of the Sunday of creation. He makes humanity. He makes man and woman, okay? He makes humans, and he says, I'm gonna set you over all my creation, on the last day of his life, on Friday, the last day of the work day, what does Jesus do on that cross? The last day of his creation work. The son of man, this human God-man, he's not made, he's unmade. He's unmade on the cross. He is, if I can say this, torn apart, torn asunder, destroyed, in a sense, sent to hell, becomes sin for us. All that sin does to us, he experiences times all he would pay for on the cross. He is unmade, the opposite of when God made Adam and Eve. He is the undoing of sin. He absorbs it all, God's sponge, into his body and soul. And then he finishes the work, just as God finished the work in Genesis 1. And he says what? It is finished. It's the last thing he says on the cross, and then he gives up his spirit. And then what does he do, just like God at the beginning, on the Sabbath, on the seventh day, what does Jesus do? He rests in the grave, no work, he rests after his work, which is finished. And on the first day of the week, he rises like Adam rose, okay? The new type of man, not just a man, a new type of man that we too can become if we are represented in him by faith. He rises from the earth, just like Adam did, with the breath of God in him, with the spirit of God full in him, and he, no sin in him, just like Adam, but unlike Adam, unable to sin, and unlike Adam, victorious, Okay, a friend and a son of the Father. And now, we who were represented in the first Adam in sin and in rebellion against God can be represented by the second if we will simply look to him. There are two races on earth, that's it. There aren't, just, there aren't a million or 118 or 200 or however many, there are two races on earth according to the Bible, according to the biblical worldview. You're either in the first Adam, born in sin, in rebellion against God, or you're in the second Adam, represented by the second Adam who's victorious over sin, buried it, buried your sin, and rose to a new kind of life, untouched by sin, free, okay? And that's apprehended by us by faith, by looking to him, okay? And he becomes our representative. Um, 
And so what the early church got, friends, was what I want you to get, and then we're done, that, and I wanna get more, that the resurrection doesn't, for us, for us, the resurrection doesn't start one day when Christ returns. It starts the day that we trust in him, the day that we look to him as our savior, and his presence and his spirit comes inside of us, and we are resurrected spiritually. And one day, what that means is, because spirit is antecedent to matter, and so one day that means that inevitably, invariably, our bodies will be resurrected when he returns. But the resurrection has broken into this one. Every time you see someone look to Christ and is born again, that's the resurrection power of the living God coming and breaking into this dead world which is dying and will one day be totally buried. And they are a new creation in Christ. Behold, the, all, the old is gone, the new has come. The new has come. Um, I have a friend who's recently come to Christ and he sounds different. Not only the words he uses, and they do, but his voice, and he looks different. He had a sort of hardness and plasticity over him, and he was a bit deceptive, and now he's like a crystal, like glass with light coming through. It changes you. That's the, that's the new, cre- that's not him. That's, it is him, but it's not anything he's done but received the finished work of Jesus Christ, and his resurrection power has come into this man and is changing him from the inside out. Being a Christian is not doing a bunch of good stuff. Being a Christian is being a new creation in Christ by saying yes to him, I believe. I'm a sinner, make me a saint, I believe. You died for me, you rose for me. Come in me, Holy Spirit. Um, And you know, the early church got this um, and it's one of the reasons that they were so willing to charge in like um, during, into into leper colonies and in the 13th century when uh, the Black Plague hit Europe and uh, they, the, everyone else would flee, families of, of, of plague victims would leave, and the Christians would charge into the cities and take care. Why? Because they knew the resurrection had already broken in, and life could not be stopped in them, and so suffering and pain in disease and death, it, it didn't matter. They won. And in fact, that stuff helps produce more and more and more of Christ in us, the hope of glory. It helps us sort of loosen our grip on the things of this world more and more and more. We have what we cannot lose. We have what we cannot lose. Um, lastly, the resurrection, I'm ending with this, okay? And then we pray. It means ordinary life. It means ordinary life, not endless harps in the Gary Larson cartoon, harps on clouds. Nobody wants that. That's not what heaven's gonna be. It's not what the new heavens and new earth is. It means ordinary life that will be saved and will last. Um, it means, the resurrection means that God still looks at ordinary life and us and says, it is good. It is good. Um, the incarnation and the resurrection is his emphatic stamp of approval on that. Uh, it rescues ordinary life free from sin and suffering and pain. We don't have that. It's breaking in now. We don't have it perfectly until Christ returns, but we will. We will. We will have beef stew and red wine at a table with good friends a setting sun on a still night, streaks of peach and purple shot across an azure sky, digging in your garden, playing with your kids, taking a nap, reading a good book curled up by a fire with either a, a pint of brown ale or a cup of strong coffee or whatever, whatever it is that you love right there at your elbow. Um, this is Keller Wright's uh, ordinary life. There is nothing better, he says, than ordinary life except that it's always going away from us. Think about my kids. There's nothing better than that, except that it's always going away from us and it's always falling apart. What the resurrection means, friends, is not anymore. Jesus has the last word. Let's pray.
Father, I, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for loving us so much that you gave him to us to be crushed in our place and to rise in our place, Lord, and to reign in our place and to return for us. I just wanna feel led to pray um, the sinner's prayer this morning, Lord, for any who might, you might be speaking to and drawing to yourself. I just wanna pray, and God hears you. You don't have to pray out loud, but Lord, um, I'm a sinner, and I know that you died for me, that you lived a perfect life of obedience that I haven't lived in my place, and that you died a death on a cross uh, because your father is just and demands payment for my rebellion, and you took it on the cross, and I believe you died for me. And I believe on Easter morning you rose for me. And I look to you and you are Lord and you are savior and you have opened up a hole in this pitiless world and I wanna walk through it with you. I wanna be with you. Um, forgive me of my sins, Lord. Make me, make me clean, as clean as you are, as loved as you are, a chi as child of the Father as you are, as reigning as you are. I love you, I worship you, I thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.